1: Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com/rvpod. And use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision daily briefing. I'm Andreas Dino from Real Vision, sending to you live Tuesday, mm-hmm. September 13th, after another inflation shocker. Uh, it's been uh, a day of uh, great volatility in uh, equities. My own portfolio is bleeding, but I'm looking forward to debate whether the Federal Reserve will need to hike by 100 basis points at the next FOMC meeting with my guest of the next 30 minutes minutes, namely Tony Greer. Good to see you again, Tony. Andreas, how you doing, man? Uh, not too bad, but um, honestly, my portfolio is bleeding today, Tony. Um, give us the brief overview of the market action today after this inflation shocker.
1: Yeah, the inflation shocker was uh a toaster getting thrown into the bathtub, without a doubt. You know, we thought that, you know, with the with all of the media and Fed official, commentary about, you know, recession slowing economy, we thought that we were going to have some kind of reversal coming, right? You know, the market was convinced that expectations of inflation had gotten way far ahead of itself. um, You know, and we thought that we were going to come in and see a change lower in inflation and sort of a change in some of the trends that we had been seeing. And we wound up seeing a continuation of the strong dollar trend, the rising yield trend, The interest rate sensitive sectors of the market getting clubbed trend, right? So we got two-year yields today vaulting to three and three-quarter percent. That's a new high. Ten-year yields right to the May peak at three and a half percent. We even got break-evens to bounce. Five-year break-evens bounce up to 2.62%. And we have an equity bloodbath. And the amount that you bled out determined by how sensitive your business is to interest rates. Quite honestly, you know, we've got all of the interest rate sensitive stuff on the bottom off 6% or more today as we speak. Andreas, cannabis, social media, software, cloud storage, home builders and retail, right? Perhaps the most interest rate sensitive stocks in the market, off 5% or more. The NASDAQ, cybersecurity, consumer discretionary, gold miners, right? So they're kind of getting to everything today. They're just getting to natural resources a little bit less. Um, With the Bloomberg Commodity Index managing to eke out a 50 basis point loss today, which was a day that there was, you know, if it wasn't a dollar trading, it was an all asset class sell off. So I think that can continue. I think the strength in commodities can continue. I don't think that the market is set up to break down, um, to implode to a new low or really get going much on the upside. I think we're in for a lot of volatility for the rest of the year. Um, fits and starts, trying to make sense of the curve, the break-evens of interest rates, the energy markets. And I just don't think that's going to lead to a trending S&P in either direction. That's my take on it as of now, Andreas. What do you think?
2: Well, I I find it tricky. You know, my portfolio is currently made up by a long in the S&P 500 versus a short in the German DAX. It's made up by a long position in long bonds, a very tricky position to hold these days, and then a short in uh, the commodity space. So the... Overall package has done pretty well in recent weeks, but um, not today to be honest. Uh, but I wanted to to show you our tweet of the day, Tony, because uh, both Jonathan Farrow from Bloomberg but also Nick Tamraos from uh, from Wall Street Journal uh, retweeted a, um, a comment from Nomura Research right after this inflation print hinting at a 100 basis points interest rate hike uh, at the next uh, Federal Reserve meeting. What do you make of that debate? Is 100 basis points on the table now? I suppose it has to be, Andreas. You know,
1: I try to be a spectator in the bond market debates and just kind of see who's developing more and more merit. Um, it, it, it seemed to me like everyone that was arguing that a recession was about to happen, that rates had to come off. I didn't feel like they had a lot of economic data to stand on. You know, we come in today with inflation better than expected, we will pro- we'll likely get PPI maybe better than expected, putting even more pressure on the Fed. And yeah, it sounds like you know more interest rate hikes rather than less for longer um which is more important kind of for my book um in seeing that this inflation issue is not gonna go away you know it seems to me like I've been um the 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 bond markets and the rates markets seem to be not flinching by either the Federal Reserve or the government media rhetoric that's coming out that we're going to have to slow down the economy to cool off this inflation. It seems to me like the bond market is paying closer attention to the Treasury, who is writing stimulus act after stimulus act with a different name and call it loan forgiveness. And then we're going to send you a check and we're going to write a check to reimburse these guys. And we're going to shift the energy profits over to you. And the Treasury market is seeing right through all of that and saying everything that this administration is doing to fight inflation is inflationary. And as yields are going to prove, they are not backing off. So yeah, I mean, if we're going to price in a tighter Fed, that that would not shock me at all, Andreas.
2: If we look at the headlines today, um, one of the sort of top stories I've noted is that the Biden administration apparently mulls buying back oil at levels just below $80 a barrel. Um, I mean, you've been playing this energy space from the long side most of this year, Tony, uh, by the way, spot on. Um, but what do you make of this headline? Is it, a, is it even possible for the Biden administration to play this long game in oil um, in any case? Well, two things.
1: First of all, you you made a great call yourself, Andreas, and that was, you know, you were bearish energy at the highs and that was very astute, um, especially natural gas call. You know, it does look like the pressure has been taken off of Europe. It looks like they're doing better than the markets expected on storage. And so cheers to you on that call. Um, apparently, the Biden administration is day trading the SPR, as far as I can tell, right? They're making sales in the low 60s. They made Last week, the biggest SPR sale in history, as reported by Zero Hedge, of 8.4 million barrels. When I calculate the average price roughly of last week in oil, it was about $85 a barrel. If we sold 8 million barrels of the SPR into that and the oil market comes back 87.5 bid, I'm going to say that the SPR sales keeping the market down is unsustainable. And now they've gone already and admitted – for what reason, I don't know, that they might be a buyer at lower prices. you know. So I would be shocked to see them get filled in on a bid below $80 or anything like that. I feel like they're posturing for when they empty the SPR and then have to come and buy it back at higher prices. And they can say, well, we wanted to buy it back at 80 but the market's not letting us. I think that's what that headline is all about.
2: So uh, in terms of getting involved uh, directly in the crude oil market, Tony, do you consider this $80 handle a, a new bottom, basically, after this headline?
1: Well, you know, yeah, I, and now I'm 81 bid for life, right? I don't think oil is <laughs> going to trade $80 in our lifetime. No, I'm kidding. But um, I think it'll be difficult just given market structure to get down to that price. Um, my my book's a little bit lighter. I'm out of oil, the commodity, Andreas, in terms of like all the stuff that I bought during lockdown, sold some of during the Russian invasion of Ukraine and wore the rest, quite frankly, until about last week. Um, so I'm out of oil, the commodity. I wanted to free up my mind to be able to observe and see what was going to happen going into winter. I have remained long the energy stocks and I will continue to as long as they are performing the way they have. You know, you can even see on days like today, Andreas, I'm a big proponent of what I call the great rotation where I think commodities are going to outperform technology and certainly equities. Um, and you can see even on down days the great rotation has a huge day on the upside where everything technology gets killed for five and six percent and your natural resources portfolio is down between two and two and a half percent depending on what sector you look at. For me, you know that's that's where that's me being able to say, okay, I'm surviving this equity sell-off right? If the broader market is off 5% and my sector is off two, I haven't done that badly, right? And and hopefully I'll get the upside back in a rally. But I think that we're still in that phase where commodity inflation is going to force the hand of the Federal Reserve. The bond market is going to continue to force the hand of the Federal Reserve and pushing yields higher. And Interest rate sensitive sectors of the market are going to get bludgeoned, Andreas. They've been puffed up for too long. Now they're technically on their back, and I feel like we can really come after them.
2: Uh, how do you risk manage such a position in natural resources, um, Tony? Uh, do you always trade it directionally, or do you trade it in spreads versus other uh, sectors?
1: Yeah, I trade them. You know, I trade them all. I, I try to keep all these trades under their as their own merit, Andreas. You know, it, it looks like an equity long short pad right now. But, you know, there have been plenty of times when I'm happy to be long only. Um, I haven't been short only in a long, long time, but we may get to that if natural resources curl over and the equity market keeps tumbling. So what I try to do, Andreas, is get ahead of the market coming off with some shorts on the pad, which we put on, you know, weeks ago, which are now in the black. And if we have to get out of all of our market length on the way down, what we'll be left with will be a set of shorts that will be performing. So that's the way I try to manage it. It doesn't always work out perfectly, but I feel it gives me a little bit of leeway in terms of being able to trade the natural resources strength versus the tech weakness. You know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. Uh, Tony, how important is the ongoing ESG trend for your view on natural resources? Uh, Man,
1: you know, great point, Andreas. You know, it's really, it's, it's everything. It's everything. And I've seen so much propaganda in the newswires about, you know, how did you how did ESG get caught up in America's culture wars? Right. And I saw that article come out of the NPR. And I've seen some other articles in the USA Today, you know, warning about how ESG is getting this, you know, unfair uh, treatment because of, you know, not really accounting for what it's done in the markets. And, you know, you really upset American culture when you go and double the price of gas at the pump and quadruple the price of natural gas at the spigot, right? That's upsetting culture, right? That That is, you know, like Larry Fink likes to say, that is affecting outcomes and changing behaviors. So um, as long as that's going to be the case, as long as we've got the blueprint across the pond for what could happen if things go wrong... You know, I think politicians are going to continue to, you know, I think that they're financially incentivized, but I think that they're going to continue to push the whole thing. You know, they continue to push it through the media. And until I see them say, OK, go ahead and start drilling on some federal lands, I'm going to expect the oil price to be biased to the upside because we're still, you know, OPEC just reported they expect global demand, oil demand, uh, gasoline demand. Sorry they expect global oil demand to grow by 3 million barrels a day in 2022 and another 2.7 million barrels a day in 2023. So gasoline demand oil demand isn't going away we're just trying to shift the power source to a different source um that's way more profitable and beneficial to China and it seems like that's what you know is going to be the system here in the United States until something breaks.
2: Yeah uh the only caveat to that view, Tony, is that the new prime minister in the UK, Liz Truss, actually launched a new oil and gas licensing round uh, as one of her first initiatives uh, in office. So I think there is a glimpse of hope um, in terms of sort of a better strategy in Europe right now, Basically, the markets are forcing the European uh, Europeans into that view, right? Um, exactly. So maybe,
1: the, you know, maybe, Andreas, the, the pendulum has swung far enough politically where, you know, they sense all the pressure with midterms coming up and they're trying to make, you know, the that, that party is trying to make some kind of an adjustment um, so that they can show the people that they have an attitude that at least is non-zero um, cause and effect to the high energy prices. You know, if they're willing to at least have some flexibility, then maybe that's, uh, maybe that's how ESG can live through this. But certainly with no flexibility trying to go carbon neutral by 2030, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a non-starter bet. So if that's the case, then you have to look for the ESG blow-up bets, in my Ooh. opinion.
2: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsynads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
2: One thing that uh, is noteworthy in relation to this debate on ESG is the carbon emission futures market, Tony. We had a brief debate before we went on air on this market because we've actually seen a, a pretty sharp decline over the course of August and September in the price of, of carbon emissions. I think we can bring up chart too, Claire, with the uh, price development in the European carbon emission future market. Uh, but Tony, you had a great point in terms of sort of the structural setup um, in, in this market. It seems as if it's so, sort of built to rally. Uh, please explain.
1: Yeah, you know, Andreas, um, I feel like until every industry that's admitting, emitting, excuse me, carbon into the atmosphere has a carbon hedge on, then there's still a buyer of carbon credits, right? And until the last carbon emitting business has a hedge on or has their, you know, credits neutralized, which, excuse me, their emissions neutralized with credits, there will always be an incremental buyer as long as the global economy is expanding we should be expanding our emissions which creates a more of a buyer so as long as you know the economy is in okay shape and the esg policies are going along according to schedule it seems like there'll be a perpetual buyer of krbn in the carbon futures market and at the same time i feel like you know now we've just seen a strict pullback which i suppose coincides with the steep pullback in economic expectations, the slight pullback in gasoline demand that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. So that makes sense to me. Um, But otherwise, I feel that that market sends off some conflicting signals sometimes that make it very difficult for me to trade, quite honestly. And I haven't traded it at all yet. I'm still in the spectator seat, if that's all right.
2: Yeah. Uh, I haven't traded it either Uh, but to me it works at least as a decent short-term gauge of whether the gasoline demand is uh, on the rise or vice versa Uh, but interesting to follow that market because uh, you're absolutely right I think it is structurally built to rally at least until everybody is um, aboard the train so to speak but uh, Tony in relation to these um, rising energy costs I also wanted to pick your brain on the spillovers to the equity market? Because um, when I look across the board in Europe, uh, SMEs are faced with electricity bills at probably four times the level of 2021. At some point, that has to lead to lower margins for corporates, yeah. right? I, What's your I, take on that?
1: Yeah, you know, that that's kind of why that's why I've got, you know, a home builder short and a internet stock short on my pad is because I am expecting the economic weakness to kind of come out in the earnings. And not to say those specific sectors, although I think the homebuilder sector is probably doomed for some bad news, given the rate move that we're seeing now, given that rates have been higher for longer, given that rates seem to be sustainably higher for longer, I'm going to expect that there's no way that home builders can pick up the pace that they can be on. So obviously, with the ramifications in the mortgage markets, but as long as, you know, all all of uh, there are that many interest rate sensitive sectors to the market, you know, there's no other way to try to play the S&P backing off to me than to try to get out ahead of those sectors as a short play um, so that if anything else that you're in the market gets taken out, that you're at least left short something within the S&P. So if the interest rate sectors are all off today, it's an obvious day where rates are flying higher, And I would imagine that there might be a bigger test on the downside. I just feel like the uh, sentiment in the equity market is so negative and so short that there'll be buyers on the way down to the recent low and it may be not as steep as people think.
2: So that's kind of my view at the moment, Andreas. In relation to this debate on energy costs and the spillovers to equities, I wanted to play a soundbite for you from a debate I had with Peter Pugwa a couple of days ago. Um, His point is that we should expect these energy costs to uh, have sort of broad-based ramifications for the U.S. equity market as well. So let's listen to Peter here and get back to that discussion.
3: It is shocking the extent at which we've seen in Europe right now Uh, the rise, Uh, not just the extent of the rise, but the rapidity of the rise. Uh, It's a shock like anything else. I know governments are trying to mitigate it as much as they can, where they started out with price caps and subsidies for consumers and households. And now they're trying to figure out how do we save small and medium sized businesses, Uh, particularly in the UK with the new prime minister and their Talking about a cost of over over 100 billion pounds to uh, give money to small, and medium-sized businesses to 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 get through this 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 energy winter, uh, and that of course has a direct impact on overall economic economic activity and flows through earnings of of, of everybody, uh, and again also small companies. And you know I mentioned a bunch of U.S. tech companies. Uh, Every, oh, most businesses in Europe are customers of U.S. big cap tech companies. Uh, so, again, no one is immune to this. It's just what you are going to look like as we work through this, uh, whether you're going to stay in business or not, or you're lucky enough and all you're going to have to deal with is an earnings hit. But with market valuations very high, you know, it flows through in many different ways.
2: The entire interview with Peter Bougois is already available at the Real Vision platform for essential subscribers. But back to you, Tony. Um, one of the points that uh, Peter makes here is that uh, the SMEs are faced with higher uh, electricity costs and energy costs, and that we should remember that SMEs are also clients of large cap companies, so that the spillover from SMEs to large caps sort of takes a while, but ultimately, we will also see these rising energy costs hit the um, the large cap sectors. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on, on that view?
1: Yeah, I should correct my take, Andreas, because I spoke more about interest rate sensitive stocks when you asked about energy last, before the Peter bookbar Um, So let me address that. You know, higher energy costs, I think, are the reason why we've got the transport sector off 17 percent this year in a year coming out of covid, you know, where you would think there'd be tremendous pent pent up demand, you know, airline sector off 17 percent. Only the railroad sector, which has been transporting a lot of coal around the country, has been able to hold in a little bit better than any of the other transport stocks. Um, And so I think that tells a little bit of a story there. And yeah, of course, I think this filters down to literally every company, from the Fortune 500s down to, unfortunately, to all the mom and pop companies that you see all over Twitter, like that bakery in the UK that you know had its electricity costs go from you know twelve thousand pounds to sixty thousand pounds a year, and is now likely to close if they don't figure something out. So, where big corporate America is going to likely get some kind of a bailout. Little corporate America and the mom and pop shop is likely to close down forever. So that's a really, really sad side of this energy inflation story. And the longer it remains up here, the more stories like that we're going to hear. It's just going to be a fact and it's going to be terrible to go through.
2: We obviously recently got the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., but we've seen similar policies being implemented across the European continent as well. What do you make of these bailout packages? Will they work or not? Um, it's tough to have any confidence in them, you know, Andreas,
1: I mean, you know, there, there, there seems to be an insane spending spree going on, you know, since we cracked open the treasury since COVID, it seems like that's become the norm that the government is trying to become a bigger part of your life by, you know, now we're controlling, you know, it started off giving you stimulus checks for your business back Now the EU is talking about, you know, limits on energy use and things like that. So it seems like this is all going in one direction and they're going to squeeze the grape as tight as they can um, before they get caught in a lot of the ESG failure that's going to come out. And when the ESG failures do happen, and I'm meaning I'm talking about a lot of those companies that may go bankrupt due to higher energy costs, they will figure out someplace else to place the blame, manage the optics and probably write another check out of the treasury to pay for that mistake too. So no, I don't think that they're going to work. And I think it makes it easier for them to write more checks in the future, which is probably their goal.
2: We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com.
2: We have time for a couple of questions from the audience, Tony, and uh, we have a great question from uh, Sergio um, asking you, for your assessment on the positioning in the oil market relative to the positioning in the equity market. You touched upon this very bearish positioning in in equities, but what about oil?
1: Equities, they're bearish and short. There's no doubt about that. Oil, I would say the market seems balanced. It feels like it likes these prices in the mid to high 80s at the moment. I don't think judging by the fact that we're seeing open interest literally dwindle lower every day, to me, that's not something that you see when there's big, large, speculative positions stomping around in the markets, right? So that that event alone of open interest shrinking and mainly a lot of paper players running from the oil markets, which I think is contributing to that um, misplacement that Prince Abdul- Abdulaziz has referenced and that OPEC has referenced in their last comment. Um, in their last comment, they said that they saw... Um, The oil sell off being driven by erroneous signals. So I think that's part of, you know, all part of the same story whereby the speculator is really exiting the oil market right now for a lack of uh, clear direction. You know, you've got, um, you had the oil bulls like myself all get, you know, all get excited by a recent breakout and then smashed by that recent China lockdown story, which seems like they're using to sort of temper the global economy. But, you know, when you get burned like that, that shakes a lot of the last longs out of the market. It shook me out of my oil position. And I really don't feel like it trades like there's a lot of length out there. Right, Andreas, the sell offs are one and a half and three dollars deep, not ten dollars deep like there are when, you know, we've seen the commitment of traders get loaded up red line long. So. I feel like the speculator has kind of run from the oil markets and that's going to make it better for the small speculator like me, but probably more annoying where the physical markets and the paper markets have more of a chance to you know, probably widen further from the truth. So we'll see if they come back into focus one day, but I think that they will. We'll see. It's going to take a while for this recovery to happen, though. That's for sure. There's a lot of blood in the energy market streets right now.
2: Yeah, and this lack of open interest could be the exact reason why we didn't see uh, a big response in the oil market to the sell-off that we saw broadly speaking in uh, in equities today. Um, we have a great question from from Chris, Chris on on YouTube as well. Um, he's asking you whether you consider getting involved in the long oil trade again if we go close to that uh, eighty handle that we discussed earlier.
1: Uh, more likely to get involved in the oil trade if it gets closer to the 95 price, like I was excited to see it break through last time. That's still an important level for me, Andreas. I'm I'm going to be more of a buyer on strength as the market confirms what we already know that it's extremely tight. It will remain backwardated until years and years of supply come back on the market. And I think that that's going to contribute to a higher price because I'm not bearish gasoline demand. So I kind of that that's how I see it playing out. Um, if that's fair.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Tony, uh, I've spent most of the past uh, two weeks talking about the cleat spark spread in European electricity. Um, but uh, we have a question in relation to the uh, sort of diesel slash oil equi- equivalent of that spread, namely this, um, the current crack spread. Uh, so what's your take on the uh, crack spread right now and the signal sent from that spread uh, in terms of oil demand? Um,
1: I look at the crack spread like the refiners look at it, right? Mm. The refiners have looked at it for years saying, yeah, our crack spread, our margin here is between five and 10 bucks. When it's at 10 bucks, we make a lot of money. When it's at five bucks, we make a little money, and our stocks don't do as well. For the last year or so, it's been between 20 and 60 dollars. That's generally good for the refiners, and they've you know performed this year commensurately in a negative tape. So I think that story is coming out in the wash. Um, the fact that it's been had from 60 to 30 is a concern, but 60 dollars was likely unsustainable. Right. Sixty dollars is what happens when there's no government intervention, when there's no SPR sale at all, when there's no addressing the optics of an inflationary oil market. When you come in and address the optics of an inflationary oil market with the Federal Reserve and the force of the mighty American media that tells you the recession is coming, you knock the crack spread down, you knock gasoline demand estimates down, you know, and you're acting then on the markets to have an effect. So I don't think that they're going to be able to have the effect where they get the crack spread back to 5 or $10. I think rather that seeing it at $30, whether it's 30 40 or 50 the crack spread I look at as being elevated for longer and that being a positive for oil stocks.
2: The final question uh, for today's show is um, from our YouTube channel as well. Uh, Tony, you're you're being asked whether Biden can use Canadian oil to refill the SPR. Do you have a view on on whether that's a um, a realistic channel, so to speak? Not without a pipeline,
1: <laughs> right? So, I mean, I, I would have thought that with uh, you know with a pipeline in place, that that might have been an option. But if we're not going to build that pipeline, then probably not. You know. So I'm I'm really just going on the fact that they're going to wind up going back to the open market to buy it. I feel like the Biden, I mean, what would be more Biden administration than seeing them sell the entire SPR at an average of 75 and buy it back at an average of 125? Probably nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like the odds are lining up that that's more likely than not to happen.
2: Yeah, I think we should uh, leave the audience with that comment. For,
1: for we'll leave them with a nice soft comment on the Biden administration. Yeah.
2: Exactly. But uh, you know, Tony, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the show with a meme. And today, I simply need to have a laugh about myself because I've called the peak in inflation since June. Um, and therefore, I wanted to show you this meme uh, uh, taken from the Narcos series on Netflix. Uh, so Pablo Escobar is waiting for inflation to come down as well as I am. <laughs> That's amazing, so I love F- it. Fingers crossed. Um, if you watched the price plan survey from the NFIB survey uh, among SMEs today. That was actually a glimpse of hope for my view um, because the price plans, they uh, keep decelerating um, among SMEs in the US. So there is a hope uh, or there is a chance to quote Jim Carrey. (laughs) I will leave you with with that for today, Tony. It was a great pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks for joining. Great job, Andreas. I
1: appreciate it. Very well done, sir.
2: Thank you very much, Tony. And uh, thank you for watching out there. My colleague, Mackie Lake, will be back tomorrow with uh, Darius Dale, guesting the show. See you tomorrow.
1: What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com
3: and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.